you've got your Bible uh, with you, it'd be wonderful to open that up to Luke's Gospel. And we're just going to read a few verses from chapter 8. And then after we've read, then the children can go out to Sunday school and out to crash. So Luke chapter 8, we're just going to read from verse 22 through to 25. One day he, that's Jesus, uh, got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down upon the lake and they were, fill, they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who, is, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Maybe actually before the uh, young ones go out, we'll all pray together uh, and then the exodus can begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truths that we've been singing about. We thank you that it's in those truths about Jesus that we find our oneness and our unity and our togetherness. We do have a wonderful saviour. And we pray, Father, as we give ourselves to your word, we pray that you would help us each one to turn our eyes upon Jesus to put aside the distracting thoughts and to concentrate on what you say to us in your word. We pray that for the young ones as they head to Sunday school, for us older ones as we sit here and listen, we pray that you will speak to us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. As we begin to think about this account of uh, Jesus calming the storm, I want to tell you about something that happened on my commute to work. Uh, this was last year, kind of, autumn heading into winter and I was on the long commute from uh, number one Medaway uh, to the to the office space that Richton Eunice have kindly given us at Lane House uh, and I was walking along right up there just along the road and it was a, a wonderful morning uh, a really beautiful morning actually you know this kind of uh, the sun was was bright but it was crisp uh, the the world just looked wonderful and across the fields there was just this wonderful dew that like a you know million diamonds had been scattered all over the fields and I, I was walking along I think I had some music on and I'm just you know the morning had gone well <laughs> uh, and everything was in its right place and I was just full of thankfulness uh, to the Lord and then as I got to about the railway bridge uh, I looked down on the floor uh, and there on the floor was a rabbit that had been hit by a car. It was covered in flies. Uh, its eyes were missing. It was a grotesque sight, really ugly. And I just thought to myself, what a strange, what a strange world we live in. Uh, on one hand, this, this beauty, this majesty, this, this glory, this order. And then the other hand, something that was so ugly and broken and out of place. 
why am I telling you about my commute to work? I think as I read uh, this uh, account of uh, the storm on the Sea of Galilee, it got a similar feel. Here's Jesus at the end of a busy day. He's puts out to sea with his disciples. Uh, they're in their kind of comfort zone. They're on the lake. They know what they're doing. Uh, I imagine a, a peaceful, tranquil evening and Jesus goes fast asleep. And then suddenly, suddenly this windstorm comes down from the hills and everything just turns to chaos. A world of beauty and order and a world of terrible uh, chaos and disorder, both at the the same time. It feels like a, a contradiction, doesn't it? Maybe you uh, just took a few moments to look back over the last weeks and months. Maybe you can spot those two things at play in your life, the beauty, the loveliness, the order, and then also the the chaos, (laughs) the disorder, uh, the things that threaten to swamp you and overwhelm you. And before we, we, we actually look at what Lou said, I think it's good for us just to step back and get a big, bigger picture and just ask the question, why is this world the way it is? Why is it that there's both order and, and chaos, beauty and, and ugliness, things that are terrible? I think we get answers to that question right at the start of, of the Bible. The first uh, chapter of the Bible, in fact, tells us why this world is a beautiful and ordered world. Uh, Genesis 1 verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There you've got this picture of these primeval waters, this disorder, this chaos, and there's the, the Spirit of God, and then God speaks. And with his word comes beauty and order, and everything is put in its uh, right place. The water's in their place, the dry land, the animals, the, the birds, uh, the, the, the plants, the, the people. Everyone has their place. And in fact, mankind is given a kind of a prime place. The top of the tree to rule and have dominion over the world. A kind of king under the Lord God himself. But then, you know, don't you, that's not where this... this <laughs> The story ends, sadly, we have a Genesis 3. And humanity, who was given such a a, a privileged position, Adam and Eve, to to rule, to multiply and extend God's rule throughout all creation, they rebel against God's good word. They turn away. And the world is, is cursed. And God says, to Adam, Genesis 3, verse 17, that from now on, he says, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Speaking about the created order, there's going to be disorder. He says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God is telling Adam there is going to be now disorder where there was previously order. And in fact, so much so that Adam, the one who was made to to rule, is going to in fact be swallowed up by creation. 
You came from the dust and to dust you shall return. I wonder if you ever wondered why it takes zero effort for things to get messy. You ever wonder that? <laughs> you never have to work hard to get an untidy bedroom. You just have to do nothing. Everything, it seems, is always un- unravelling. I think it's having that background in mind that it's helpful as we come to this account of the storm that threatens to swamp uh, Jesus and his disciples there on the Sea of Galilee. We're just going to work our way, it's only a short passage, work our way through the story and then just come to two questions, two questions that are there uh, in the text for us. So first of all, uh, the scene is, 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 a, is a, a tranquil one. We get the calm before the storm. So there in verse 22, uh, on the day he got into, on, on one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side. So they're on the lake at Jesus' instruction. Jesus has said, we're, we're heading over to the other side. And like I said before, this is uh, the disciples in their comfort zone. This is what they knew. Many of them were, were fishermen. Uh, they knew the Sea of Galilee, kind of getting into the boat, getting the tackle in, uh, no, casting off the ropes, doing all that was as, as kind of familiar to the disciples as it is for you to get in your car and head off to work. This was very common ground for them, a place where they feel they're in control. And we just get this comment, it says, as they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. It's easy just to read over that, isn't it, Jesus? He's tired. End of the day, he goes to sleep. Yeah, I think it's good for us just to pause there and Picture Jesus uh, sleeping in the boat. And just remember that Jesus slept because he was tired. Jesus got tired. We know what it's like to be tired, don't you? Get to the end of the day. Sometimes not even the end of the day. Sometimes tea time and you feel like you've got nothing left in the tank and you've still got a bedtime routine to do. (laughs) And you don't know how you're going to manage. And you're tired. Jesus here. Is asleep. It's, it's, uh, it's mysterious, isn't it? The one who is the Lord of creation, the one who sustains the whole world by the word of his power, should lie down and sleep. As I thought about that, I wanted to kind of rewrite a line from Charles Wesley's hymn, <laughs> And Can It Be? Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. And I thought, tis mystery all, the almighty sleeps. Strange, isn't it? Have you ever thought much about what it means for Jesus to be both God and man and how that, how that works? You know, often we, we picture Jesus as some kind of superman <laughs> who, who, who doesn't know the limitations that we know who doesn't know the weaknesses that we know. But Jesus isn't a superman. He is God and he is man. The early uh, church history here, but going back to the early church, they, they sought to kind of try and think this through and spell out what it means for Jesus to be God and man. How, how, does, that, how does that work? And here's uh, one of the creeds that comes from the 5th the century. 
I tried to write down clearly and, and succinctly who this man Jesus is. They said, our Lord Jesus, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, truly God and truly man. And they went on to explain that a little bit more. They said, at no point does a difference, is the difference between the two natures taken away through the union. So you have a, a divine nature and a human nature. And at no point is those differences taken away by them being joined together, but rather the properties of both natures are preserved and comes together in a single person. Well, you might say, why am I laboring this? Why, do I, why is Luke reading from a, an early church creed? Well, what we think about Jesus is really important. And if we have the idea that Jesus is some kind of a superman <laughs> and not really a, a, a real man, we're going to think he's far off. We're going to think when we go through the storms of life and we see Jesus here in the boat and he just calms the storm, we're going to think, well, of course, it's okay for him. He doesn't really understand. But Jesus knows. Jesus does understand. That is the Hebrews talks about Jesus being able to sympathize with us because he's become like us in every way, tempted in every way, and yet he's without sin. In the Psalms, we get this lovely verse that the, the Lord remembers our frame for he knows we are dust. And the Lord knows because Jesus knows. So that's the calm before the storm. And then we're thrust into the middle of the storm. Don't know how long the disciples have been sailing for. The Sea of Galilee apparently is about eight miles across. So they could have been going for maybe an hour. And I'm no geographer, but around the Sea of Galilee, there is lots of tall, high mountains. And Galilee sits uh, below sea level, some hundreds of meters below sea level. Uh, and I believe that just because of the kind of the geography around the area, there was uh, often could often be these very rapid onset storms that were hard to predict. The weather could change really quickly. I'm sure the disciples knew this. People who who live in, in, by the sea they tend to have a, have a healthy respect for the for the sea and its power <laughs> and what it can do. We were uh, on a holiday a few years ago in a place called Eyemouth. Uh, strange, strange name on the East Coast. I don't know anyone's been there. Uh, but Eyemouth is, uh, it's famous really because there was a, a great tragedy there. If you go to Eyemouth, there's a museum uh, and, and much of the museum is dedicated to something that happened in the, the late 1800s. A whole fleet of fishing boats went out to, to sea, I think about 55. Most of them from the, from the fishing village of Eyemouth. And while they're out at sea, a very sudden storm descended. None of the boats re returned. I think nearly 200 men were, were lost at sea. Most of those from this small fishing village. So people who live by sea tend to, tend to have this healthy respect 
for the sea because they know it's an untamable power. And the disciples are not novices when it comes to the sea. This is what they knew. And so when Luke records that a windstorm came down the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger, and when the disciples are so overwhelmed that they think they're perishing, this isn't just a, in some waves kind of flapping into the boat. This is the, this is the real deal. Here were the disciples at the very point where they thought they were strong, where they were in control, where they knew what they were doing. And suddenly <laughs> they have nowhere to turn. They're at their wits end, They're at the end of the rope, and they don't know what to do. They cry out, Master, Master, we are perishing. Be surprised, actually, if anyone here this morning has had an experience like this on a boat where you've almost gone down. If you have, want to know about it after. <laughs> but imagine it's pretty scary. I've read in novels about what it's like to be in, a, be in a storm. In fact, we have an account in the Bible from the Apostle Paul himself when he's traveling to Rome and he gets caught in a storm. And this is what he writes of, of his experience or what Luke writes uh, as he uh, recounts Paul's experience. He says, since we were violently storm-tossed, this is Acts 27, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, just throwing everything overboard. And then on the third day of the storm, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And then when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. See what Paul's saying there? He's saying that in the storm, you can't see the stars, you can't see the sun, you can't see anything. All of those, those kind of marker posts that would help you navigate, that give you some sense of, of where you are and what's going on, all of those have, have disappeared. And I've never been in that situation on a boat, but you know, you don't need to be on a boat to have that kind of experience in this world where you feel like you're going to be swamped. Where you feel like all of the all of the kind of markers, all of the things that have helped you navigate and know what to do have suddenly disappeared. And you feel unmoored and lost and tossed about and you don't know where to turn. I was speaking to someone just this last week and uh, they've just had lots of change. They've been bereaved. They've changed their job. They've moved church. They've moved house. And they just felt like at sea. <laughs> lost, not, not quite knowing where to turn, like a ship without a rudder, being driven along and out of control. And that's the experience that we can have in this world. It is a, it is a beautiful world, isn't it? But it can, just, it can be a terrifying world. Can be the case for us as individuals. That phone call that just brings news that turns your world upside down. That can be the case for families. <laughs> Maybe something, some waves hit a family and suddenly everything that was so clear and the family feels blown apart. It can be the case for churches. Churches can feel the, the threatening of these waves that threaten to cause chaos. 
One of the uh, the questions that I often ask of people in church, I'm sure you ask it as well. I'm sure you ask it when you meet most people. How are you? How, how are you doing? I'm sure I've asked that someone this morning. And you, we have this kind of stock response, don't we? You know, I'm, I'm okay. I'm good. And we say that. And then we go on our way. And we know we're not good. We know things are difficult. And if someone just kind of stopped and asked the question a, a second time, in fact, someone did that to me yesterday. They asked me, how am I? And I said, I'm okay. And then they looked at me kind of directly, are you really? <laughs> and often behind the, the okay, there's a, a world of difficulty. I feel like things are unravel- unraveling. Sometimes we feel like we just cannot see a way out. Like the disciples, we feel like this thing is going to sink us. We're going down to the bottom. We're perishing. We're in the middle of a storm. And then comes the calming of the storm. Jesus wakes up, says verse 24, these remarkable words, and he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. They're amazing, aren't they? <laughs> Let me suggest a, a, an exercise for you if you're not amazed by verse 24 <laughs> of Luke chapter 8. You go down to, to Morecambe next time there's a real storm. You know, next time there's 90 mile an hour winds, you go down to the front of Morecambe, and you stand there, maybe next to Eric Morecambe's statue, and you turn and face the sea, and you yell in your loudest deepest, most authoritative voice at those waves, you yell, peace, <laughs> be still. I suggest before you yell that you look around and make sure no one's looking. <laughs> I think you're crazy. But try it and see what happens. And then think about Jesus in the boat. And as soon as he speaks, these unruly waves and this fierce wind just dies down. There's a calm. There's all kinds of things in this world that are just beyond our control, aren't there? But there is nothing that is beyond the control of our Lord Jesus. And I love the words of that song that we sang before. Be still my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. And the reassurance that this passage gives us is that no matter how fierce the storm is, no matter how badly you feel battered by life in this world, if you're trusting Jesus, the storm isn't going to be the last word. (laughs) Remember all of these miracles that we've been looking at in Luke's gospel, they're they're previews, they're pictures of of the Saviour and his salvation the raising of the dead, the the healing of the sick. And here we have the subduing of all chaos and terror and disorder. And they're a picture of what our Lord will ultimately and finally do. When his great salvation is brought to bear on all of his creation. If you turn to Revelation Chapter 21, uh, you read this right at the start of the chapter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven 
and the first earth was passed away, had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. No longer any sea. Maybe you're disappointed by that. You, you like the seaside. <laughs> you love a beach holiday. Well, if you were a Jew reading that in the first century, you would think a little bit differently. In Jewish literature, the sea was often used as a symbol of all that was chaotic, of all that was threatening, of all that was sinister. And John says there was no more sea. No more potential for chaos and disaster. That's the future for all who trust in our Lord Jesus. That gives us hope, doesn't it? And Jesus uh, asks a question. We have two questions, in fact, here as we get to the end of the, the passage. The first is a question that's asked by Jesus. The second is a question that's asked by his disciples. And we're just going to, as we draw to a close, think about these two questions. First, the question the disciples asked. Who is this man? That's, that's the kind of question you would ask, wouldn't it? That's a, an obvious question if you're there in the boat. You've just seen Jesus stand up, speak to the wind and the waves, and there's a great calm. You would think, who on earth is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? That's a question I think Luke, the writer, wants us to ask. He's writing, isn't he, so that we can be certain of the things that we've been taught. Many people have all sorts of ideas about who Jesus is and his identity. But here as the disciples ponder that question, they are in awe. In fact, it says they're afraid. Full of fear. They were, they were scared of the storm, but now the one who controls the storm, he stood in the boat next to them and they're wondering who he is. I wonder what conclusions you've drawn about the person of Jesus. Who he is. I wonder if those conclusions have led you to be in awe and to tremble before him. We read earlier from Psalm 107, I think that gives an answer to the disciples' questions. In Psalm 107, it says, They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Who is this? This is the Lord. This is, this is God. Job 38, we read that it's God's work to say to the proud waves, come this far, but no further. Jesus is the Lord God himself and we've been learning about the appropriate response to him. It's trust. That trust means we listen to him. That trust means we obey him. That trust means we submit to him. That's what we've been seeing through Luke chapter 7 and 8. Is that the, the pattern of our life? And then the question that Jesus asks his disciples now you can see at verse 25, he said to them, where is 
your faith? It's a probing question, isn't it? I think, don't know what tone of voice Jesus used with that question, but perhaps there's a hint of rebuke in there. Where is your faith? They've seen Jesus do marvellous things, hadn't they? Raise the dead, heal the sick. And now in their trouble, they're full of doubt. We, we, we are the same, aren't we? When those waves wash over us, and the question comes, where is your faith? You see, it's often, is it not, it's in the storm that faith is tested and proved and grows. And it's in the storm that we learn more about who Jesus is. It's true, I can see a few people nodding. As I... Uh, looked at this this week, I thought of a, a poem by John Newton. Perhaps my favourite poem, it goes like this, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray and he I trust as answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. It's often how the Lord grows our faith by pulling out our props, all the other things that we've leaned upon so that we can know that he alone is trustworthy. I used to sing a song at Sunday school. Uh, sure, lots of you know it. With Christ in the vessel, you can smile at the storm. Uh, I think that's a little bit simplistic. <laughs> Certainly think with Christ in the vessel, there's never reason for ultimate despair. It's a bit less catchy. It's true. There's never reason for ultimate despair when you're with Jesus and Jesus is with you. We do not need to give way to despair. Jesus asks us this morning, where is our faith? Can you trust me? Will you trust me? How do we know that we can trust Jesus in the storm? Sometimes that's really hard, isn't it? We think, hold on, this storm is coming and here's the one who's Lord of the storm and he's allowed this to come into my life. How can I trust him? In the Bible, the, the sea and the, the stormy waters, uh, they remind us of the chaos and disorder in creation, but also uh, they symbolic of the judgment of God. Think about Noah and the flood. It was the judgment of God. Think about uh, the, uh, the chariots of Pharaoh and his army there as they crossed the Red Sea and the waters came and covered them. It was the judgment of God. Think about Jonah. Jonah the prophet who knew what he was meant to do and yet he rebelled and he went his own way. He got on a ship uh, in the opposite direction. And what did the Lord do? He hurled a windstorm on the sea. And when did that storm stop? That storm stopped when Jonah was cast over the side and when he sunk down into the depths. Then there was peace. 
And Jesus, uh, in the Gospels, he picks up that story of Jonah. And he speaks of his own death and resurrection as a, as a Jonah-like event. He says, just as, the, uh, just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the well, so the Son of Man will spend three days in, in the earth, in the belly of the earth. Jesus has endured a storm that we will never have to endure. He has been overwhelmed in a way that we need never be overwhelmed. He has known a chaos that we don't have to know if we trust in him. And so when you come to Jesus with all of your heartache, with all of your pain, and he says, where is your faith? Can you, can you trust me with this? You know that you can because you know that he knows more deeply than you will ever know what it's like to be overwhelmed by a storm. So I just want to leave you to ponder that question this morning. Where is your faith? Will you trust Jesus? Let's pray together and then we'll sing our final song. Dear Lord, we thank you so much, our Lord Jesus, that you are such a wonderful saviour. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came right down to where we're at, right down into our mess. We thank you that you came to rescue us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you shed your blood to make peace, real shalom. We look forward to the day when you will bring that perfect peace to bear on your world. And as we live day to day and as we face various trials and difficulties, we do ask that in your mercy, you would grant to us a measure of that peace in our experience as we trust you. Lord, continue to speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.